Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Embrace your ignorance. And the reason why is that learning begins with a recognition of ignorance. If we think we know all the answers, why bother to learn, right? So the reality is, is that we don't know all the answers. Aristotle said that the man who thinks he knows everything knows nothing at all. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Today's guest has led a fascinating life, to say the least. He spent 30 years solving complex problems for corporations, for business leaders, governors, billionaires. And he also happens to be the chairman of Wingzone and Capriotis. By the way, love Capriotis. Uh, if you haven't tried it, it's probably my favorite sandwich shop. And I used to eat there all the time when I was in Vegas. And the funny thing is, he also happens to be the former attorney general of Nevada. But today he's doing something that we're really going to dive deep in. And that is he's expanding his legacy by dedicating his time to empowering others, specifically millennials, Gen Z, and Gen Alpha and really giving them the guidance they need on their life journey. And he's imparting so much wisdom. He's written two books, The Millennial Samurai and Seizure Destiny, which I highly suggest checking both of those books out. And he's doing it for a very, very important reason. And he's going to share that reason in just a few minutes. It's a remarkable story. So let's dive in and please help me welcome our guest, George J. Chanos. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's great to be here. I'm excited to dive in. Why don't we start here? What happened in November of 2012 and how did it change your life? Well, I had an unforeseen or unexpected heart attack. It came out of the blue. It turns out that I had high blood pressure, undiagnosed high blood pressure. I never knew I had it and I never knew that my father was on medication for it. So it turns out that we both had it. He was always a bit nervous, <laughs> and uh, he lived to 92 because he, uh, he was healthy, he ran, he ate well, but he had this high blood pressure issue that he never spoke about. 
I didn't learn about it until after I had my heart attack and realized that it was blood pressure related. So in any case, what happened was I came very close to dying. I was uh, probably, if I was a half an hour later to the hospital, I probably wouldn't be talking to you now. I had 99% blockage in a main artery in my heart. I went into the hospital and said, uh, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. And they wheeled me back, hooked me onto machines, and the lights started going off. And in walked eight people, and a doctor was saying, I need morphine stat. And I said, Doc, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. And he said, uh, you're having a massive heart attack right now. And I said, well, I'm glad I'm in the right place. And uh, that was it. He said, uh, we're going to take you upstairs. The cardiac surgeon's already been called, is on his way. And we're going to try to correct this with uh, putting stints in there. And if that works, great. If not, we're going to have to take it to the next level. And we'll get into that if it's necessary. And uh, I remember being on the operating table and hearing uh, the doctor say, I need another stint. And I have remembered the first doctor saying, we can put two stints in. And then we have to go to the next level. And so now I'm on the operating table and the doctor is saying, I need another stint. So I know they're on number two. You're semi-conscious during this. And I just hope that that would be enough. Turns out it was enough. Uh, there was no permanent damage. And I you know, fully recovered. Now, at the time, my daughter was 15 years old. She's 25 now. And um, at the time, I was concerned about her, you know, what would happen to her if I passed away. And my nephew and my other nephews and nieces, you know, so I put my affairs in order. I made uh, arrangements for all of them. And then I started to think about, well, what else do I need to know? And I thought, you know, I'm the most educated person in my family. If I die, I'm taking whatever knowledge I've acquired with me. And that's a shame because that's an asset. And I wanted to somehow download that asset to my family. And so I began to write a letter to my daughter. I like to write. And I sat at my laptop for over a month and I kept writing. I kept thinking of issues that she might confront and that she might want to know about and that she might need to know about. And I just kept writing. And eventually I looked at this and I said, you know, this is a book. This is not a letter. This looks very much like a book. So I thought, you know, I'll make it into a book. And that became my first book. That was called Seize Your Destiny, A Roadmap to Success. And essentially what I did was I downloaded what I had learned in my 30 years of professional experience. What was it that I believed had helped me achieve whatever level of success I had achieved? And I tried to communicate that in this first book. And when I finished it, I uh, recognized a number of things. Number one, I felt good about the process. I felt that I had left something behind that was important, not only for my daughter, but for other young people. I had one young man who wrote to me an email and he said, you don't know me. I've read your book. It spoke to me like the father I never had. And I thought, wow, that was enough to just realize that I was on the right path. Then I realized that what I had written about was about the prior 30 years, the 30 years that I had lived in, which was not the world that my daughter and this young man and my nephews and nieces were going to live in. They were going to live in the next 30 years, the next 30, 40, 50 years. And so I thought, well, what is that going to be like? I was a lawyer. I was solving complex problems for high net worth individuals. I wasn't looking at the future. I was looking past the horizon 
for 30 years. On behalf of my clients, with regard to their discrete problems, but I wasn't looking at the future in a macro sense. And so I started to study it. And for the next five years, I devoted myself to studying what was coming. And what I found was profound. It shocked me. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a pretty educated guy and, you know, pretty well read guy. And if this shocks me, if this is stuff that I had no idea was coming, it will shock others. And so I thought, I need to write about this. I need to write about it for my family. I need to write about it for future generations. I need to prepare people because no one is talking about these things and no one is trying to prepare us for what's coming. It's almost as if people think that we'll be better off if we're ignorant, if we don't know what's going to happen. But what's going to happen is going to change life as we know it. It will radically redefine what it means to be a human being and what it means to live on earth and to experience life. It's not the life that you and I grew up in. It's a very different life that's coming. And we need to be talking about it. It can't be ignored. And ignorance is not bliss in this case. I think ultimately you're taking yourself on this journey to help future generations. I think your story is so inspiring as a a 45-year-old man who's currently going to a cardiologist just to be safe. I had a little bit of an episode. I went to the ER. It wasn't a heart attack, but I have a 10-year-old. We're in very similar situations. I, I have one child and I want to make sure that I give him everything I can to live the life that he deserves to live. And your book is so powerful. I love the way in which you teach the lessons. It's not overwhelming. You do it in bite-sized chunks. You cover a lot of ground. I mean, we could talk for 30 episodes. It wouldn't even scratch the surface. I really want to talk about a few key areas. And the first one I want to talk about is if you could ensure your daughter and your nephew, because really they're the catalyst for this, your daughter and and your nephew who who you've taken care of, if you could ensure they understood one concept really, really well from either your books or your teachings, what would that one concept be and why? It would be to embrace your ignorance. And the reason why is that learning begins with a recognition of ignorance. If we think we know all the answers, why bother to learn, right? So the reality is, is that we don't know all the answers. Aristotle said that the man who thinks he knows everything knows nothing at all, right? I don't know everything. In fact, there's only one thing that I'm absolutely certain of, Billy, one thing, and that is that there is a great deal that I do not know. I am certain of that. The rest, you know, Elon Musk was asked, uh, you, you said you, you worked for Tesla, and Elon Musk is, is a brilliant, brilliant man. He said if uh, he was asked, if you could ask God one thing, what would you ask them? And he said, I'd ask her what's happening outside the sim. In other words, that we're all inside the sim and he'd want to know what's happening outside the sim, right? So if we're all inside a sim, which is a possibility, right? Then we really don't know anything, do we? Right? So the first thing I'd say is embrace your ignorance. The second thing I would say is, Frank Zappa, your mind is like a parachute. It doesn't work if it isn't open. So a visual that I would give you is think of yourself dropping out of a plane and plummeting to the ground like a rock. 
but you have a parachute. It's your brain, but it doesn't work if it isn't open. So you need to open your mind. You need to open your mind to allow information to come in. You need to realize that, you know, Alvin Toffler said that the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write. It will be those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Mm. Your mind is filled with misinformation. Your mind is filled with false information. And your brain is operating on that false information to a significant degree, depending upon the issue and the circumstances. Your mind is a double-edged sword. It is both your most powerful tool and your greatest liability. This is what most people don't understand. Our minds are not just seekers of truth. They are advocates for that which we already believe. And the problem with that is some of what we already believe is not accurate. What I want people to understand is is a little bit more about how their brains work. First of all, your brain receives 11 million bits of information per second. Now, this has been happening throughout your life. And your conscious brain can only process 15 to 50 bits of information per second. These are all things that I've learned in the last 10 years. These are not things that I knew beforehand, okay, through reading experts in these fields. And so if 99% of the information that is coming into your brain is coming in outside of your conscious awareness, number one, that creates a massive vulnerability for manipulation and misdirection. Number two, it means that the vast amount of information that has entered your brain outside of your conscious awareness has not been consciously interrogated, right? You haven't evaluated that information. It's just come in outside of your conscious awareness and it's in there and it's affecting the way you see the world. I used to always wonder when I was uh, younger, when I was in law school, for example, I would have friends in law school that uh, might have thought that Bill Clinton was the greatest president ever. And I had other friends who thought he was horrible. And I thought, well, these are bright guys. These are both, you know, my friends are bright guys. Why is one of them thinking one thing and the other is thinking the other? Today, I know billionaires that are, one billionaire thinks Donald Trump is the greatest president America has ever had. And the other one thinks he should be impeached and, and put in jail and be prohibited from running. Both are billionaires. Both went to Ivy League schools. They can't both be right. One of them has to be wrong or both of them have to be wrong. They can't both be right. Where does that come from? It comes from what their brain is telling them, right? And their brain is filled with different information. The kid who's growing up in war-torn Syria or, you know, battle-fatigued Ukraine or the Soviet Union or China or Cleveland is receiving different information every second of the day. Their brain is being filled with very different information. It's no wonder that they would see the world differently. So even children in the same household receive different information. They have different friends. They listen to different music. They go to different movies. They watch different television and TikTok reels. Their parents speak to them differently, advise them differently look at them differently. And so their brains develop differently. 
And it's no wonder they see things in a different way than their siblings. So what do you learn from that? What can we gather from that? Number one, we should learn that our beliefs and our views have no privileged legitimacy. Just because I think it's a certain way does not mean that's the way it is. Even what I'm telling you today, just because my brain is telling me that this is reality and this is what it is, doesn't mean I'm right. Well, if I can be wrong and someone else hasn't read a fraction of what I've read or devoted the time that I've devoted to learning, they can certainly be wrong, right? Yet they have a different perspective than I do. And it's one that I want. It's not one that I want to ignore. It's not one that I want to treat as a threat. It's one that I want to treat as an asset because it's different than mine. I want a 360 degree perspective of what's going on in the world. I want to see it from all angles. I want to understand it from all perspectives. That's what complex problem solvers do. That's how I've solved my problems and my clients' problems for 30 years. I've developed a helicopter perspective. I rise above situations and I look at it from all angles, which means I want a diversity of perspectives. I want to hear what you have to say, even if I violently disagree with you. I still want to hear what you have to say. I want that information. I don't want anybody to keep that information away from me. Even if I violently disagree with what you're saying, I still want to hear it. And having that, that high altitude perspective allows you to see things that you wouldn't see if you were immersed in it. Because we're, we're constantly looking for stories or information that will validate our viewpoint. And I think the key point and the key message that I got from your book, and also I'm not surprised that this is where you've landed as the key sort of cornerstone that you would want to impart on your daughter and your nephew. It really comes down to critical thinking, yeah, right? Critical thinking, looking at alternative perspectives, because as you said, about half or maybe more of the information in your brain is probably false. It's not real. We've figured out a way to validate it being real in our mind, but ultimately this is how we will be manipulated. This is how we are being manipulated and how we're fueling this confirmation bias that we naturally have. This is why groupthink happens. This is why, honestly, we're in the position that we're in as a society. And you suggest, and you mentioned this, you should interrogate the information coming into your mind. The question that I have is, is how do you do this effectively? Okay, so I look at information. I look at my thoughts. I think about my thoughts. I examine my thoughts. I think about my thoughts as transitory packets of sensory information that is derived through my five senses. And I look at those packets of information, understanding that they may or may not be true. I don't simply accept a thought as being true. I interrogate the thought. I examine the thought. I question the thought. I question my own thinking. I ask for advice from others. I seek alternative opinions. I study. I learn. I research. I don't take things at face value. Today, 
we are in a proxy war with Russia over Ukraine. And the West is promulgating a story of this being a defensive democracy, right? I'm not accepting that at face value. I've gone back and I've researched. I've read Vladimir Putin's speeches for the past 30 years. I've looked at the formation of NATO. I've looked at the expansion of NATO since the fall of the Berlin Wall. I've looked at the promises that were made. I've looked at what Putin and other Russian leaders had had been told, that NATO would not expand beyond its original 12 members. It's now 30 members. There's much more to the story than we're being told, much more, right? You look at Ukraine, and of course, it's a sovereign nation. And of course, you know, it's horrible that, you know, the bombing is occurring. My heart goes out to all the Ukrainian people who are suffering from this. But you also look at the fact that Ukraine geographically is a neighbor of a superpower, just like Taiwan is the neighbor of a superpower, just like Cuba is the neighbor of a superpower. And there are different rules that seem to apply. If you look at the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, right, that was a sovereign nation, but we did not allow that sovereign nation to have a relationship with the Soviet Union that allowed them to place offensive missiles in Cuba. And we were ready to go to nuclear war over that, right? Well, Putin's position on Ukraine that he has taken for 30 years He's been telling NATO this for 30 years, that this is a red line for him, that if Ukraine becomes a member of NATO, it allows NATO to place offensive missiles in Ukraine. It allows them to place troops in Ukraine. And this is an intolerable strategic threat to Russia, their leader believes. Now, we're told he's a madman. He's a madman bent on you know world domination, or he wants to reassemble the Soviet Union. The truth is that no Russian leader would ever allow Ukraine to join NATO and allow NATO to have that offensive capability at their border. Just like China will never allow Taiwan to have a relationship with a foreign adversary. Japan took over Taiwan. You know, there was a time that Japan held Taiwan and and was at war with China, launching its strikes from Taiwan. China has a history with Taiwan. They know that it represents a strategic launch pad for attacks against the Chinese. They also know that it's the world's leading chip manufacturing destination. The U.S. is now engaged in a massive effort to not be dependent upon Taiwan and to create its own chip making capacity, which it should have done decades ago. But now the Chinese, now the U.S. has also passed legislation that cuts China off from American chip-making technology, and from American talent. So where does China turn? They turn to Taiwan. It makes Taiwan even more strategically critical to them. And then we have Nancy Pelosi going off to Taiwan, right? Challenging, essentially challenging the Chinese. When Newt Gingrich went to Taiwan 30 years earlier as a former Speaker of the House, he first went to China, and then he didn't even go to Taiwan directly from China. He left Taiwan, I believe went to Japan, and then flew from there to Taiwan. So he was respectful. He didn't not go to Taiwan, but he was respectful of the relationship. When Nixon opened up 
relations with Taiwan in 1972, he agreed to a one China policy. Every U.S. president since Nixon has agreed to this one China policy that Taiwan was originally part of China and, you know, that it is still in the eyes of the Chinese part of China. And yet we antagonize this relationship in the Middle East now with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and OPEC raise their, uh, lower their production by 2 million barrels. And we talk about cutting off strategic arms to Saudi Arabia. So what does that mean? We're going to allow the Houthi rebels to run wild. We're going to allow Iran to go to war with Saudi Arabia. We're going to have war in the Middle East now. What, what, what's going on in the world? Right? What are people thinking? I just think that we need to step back. Like when you started this, you started this interview and you said, let's take a minute and breathe, right? Let's step back. Let's take a minute and breathe, right? That's what we should be doing right now as a country. We should step back and take a moment to breathe and reflect on what we're doing. Because what we're doing is very dangerous. We are in World War II, and when we released the atomic bomb, we were the only people who had it. We were the only people who had the atomic bomb. That's not true today, okay? That's not true today. Russia has 6,000 nuclear missiles, more than we do. And they're not the only country with nuclear weapons. India has nuclear weapons. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. North Korea has nuclear weapons. It's a dangerous time. We need to step back and pause. There's no redos. Well, and also there's, there's multiple sides to a story, right? There's multiple perspectives. And I think all too often we're spoon-fed a single perspective and we assume that to be completely valid and true when in actuality, if you really take the time as you've done to really study and really learn and be patient enough to examine all of the possibilities, all of the facts, and this probably you know, is something that I'm guessing as an, as an attorney, you had to do this to be successful as an attorney. You had to, I mean, you, you took a case all the way to the Supreme Court and you had a 9-0 victory. That doesn't happen without looking at all the perspectives and being able to, because you have to know what the counter argument is and be able to speak to that effectively so people understand why it may be something you can look beyond so that you could come up with a, a belief that is core, which is where I want to guide our conversation because you mentioned Japan. Your book's called The Millennial Samurai. And so there is this set of beliefs, this ethical code that exists within the history of samurais, that the, the Spashido, that they, they believe in this core fundamental set of principles. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I think that's core to, if we're going to teach something, impart something on the younger generations, let's look at history as a guiding light. Yeah. So the Bushido Code is the code of the samurai, and it stresses, you know, ancient core fundamental values, values like character, courage, integrity, commitment, compassion. These are fundamental ancient values, whether they belong to the samurai or the ancient Greeks or societies that were more enlightened societies believe in these ancient core values. And those are the values that have allowed generations of humanity throughout the world to succeed, 
survive, and thrive. And so Millennial Samurai begins with an introduction that tells you about the level of change that is coming. And then it tells you that you need to raise your game. And then it tells you that this begins with embracing these ancient core values. And then it takes you through those various values and explains what each of them are and why they're important. So take character, for example. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a drug dealer on the corner or you're the president of the United States. If you don't have character, and you may think, well, a drug dealer on the corner doesn't have any character. Well, they may be missing you know, some important facets of character, but are they dependable you know, to the people that they work with? right? Can the people that they work with trust them? Maybe society can't trust them. Maybe the police can't trust them. Maybe the neighborhood can't trust them. But can the guy that they work for trust them? Or is he undependable to even them, right? At some point, if you're not dependable, if you're not someone who I can take to the bank what you tell me and rely on it, then I don't want to deal with you. I won't deal with you, right? So you need that value in order to survive and thrive and succeed in life, you need to have character. The more character you have, the more successful you're likely to be. On the issue of character, there are some University of Pennsylvania professors who wrote an 800-page treatise just on that one subject, just on the subject of character. So we could go on and talk about character forever, but I can't get 18-year-old or a 25-year-old to read an 800-page treatise on character right? I'm lucky if I can get them to read a book. So I've got, I had to take what I knew about character and what I learned about character and what I researched about character. And I had to distill that like haiku poetry in one to three pages. In one to three pages, I have to convince my daughter and my nephews and nieces and other young people out there why character is central to their lives and why they need to embrace it as a core value that will allow them to survive and thrive in one to three pages, right? And the same thing with commitment and courage and compassion and authenticity and choice and all of these different topics that are so essential to living a full life have to be communicated to future generations in a way that they will absorb this information and in a way that they will accept this information. And so Millennial Samurai, a mindset for the 21st century is my attempt to try to do that. And this is book one. First of all, before I scare you by telling you it's 182 chapters and 444 pages, I want you to know that those chapters are broken down into one to three page increments. And so it is very, very easy to read. I had a 14-year-old who read the book cover to cover in one sitting. He woke up in the morning, couldn't wait to start reading it, read through the night until like late in the morning the next day and finished the book. Wouldn't put it down. Okay. I'll also tell you this. Out of all the things that I will leave my family, out of all the things that I will leave my daughter and my nephews and nieces, nothing, absolutely nothing is more important than the book. And you can get the book for free. You can go to millennialsamurai.com and you can download the entire book for free. Okay? So this isn't about making money. I'm not hyping the book to sell the book. 
I'm hyping the book because I believe that it's important. I believe it's the most important thing that I've ever done in my life. And so I want you to have it for your children. And if you can't afford it, then go and download it for free at millennialsamurai.com. And if you buy one on Amazon, it's $29. If you want a hard copy and you buy one on Amazon, I will give away a free hard copy to someone who can't afford it. Okay? So you're helping someone else put this in the hands. Every time you buy one of these books, you're helping to put it in the hands of someone else. I have 13,000 people who have downloaded the book for free. My goal is to get a million people to download the book for free. And that's why I'm on people's podcasts, because I'm trying to get the word out. And I'm very grateful for the fact that you've given me this platform to try to get that word out. Well, it's important. And I'm so glad that you've taking a model where if somebody could afford it, they could pay for it. But then that also leads to other people who can't get it, can afford it. And in a minute, we're going to get into the the last part of our conversation, which I'm so excited about, which is talking about the future. Because we've talked a lot about, like you just really did an amazing job of explaining the Bushido code and, and why it's so important to specifically character. We talked about the importance of mind and critical thinking and why we have to interrogate these thoughts that come into our mind that often are being delivered by mechanisms that for whatever reason, and it could be uh, malicious or maybe it's not, try to assume everyone has positive intent. It may just be partial information, but be aware of the fact that you might not have all the facts. Uh, but in a minute, we're going to talk about the future. It's not you might not have them. You don't have them. You don't have them. Let's be real. Uh, before we get into the future, I do have one question, which I'm quite quite curious about. You've packaged it with the millennial in mind and with the future generations in mind and making it in bite-sized pieces. But you've synthesized this information. You're part of the baby boomer generation. And quite honestly, one of the most revered generations, uplifted generations, a lot of positive talk. My dad's part of the boomer generation. I can't say the same about upcoming generations. There's not as much There's, oh, they don't have a high attention span or this or that, but let's face facts. They're the future. And so I'm curious, as a baby boomer, how did that influence how you studied and prepared to deliver a package for future generations? Well, my dad was part of the greatest generation and they fought World War II and they came back and they had loads of kids. The name says it all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The name says it all. Yeah. And they made life possible for the rest of us and freedom possible for the rest of us. And then they came back and they had kids in record numbers. And those were the baby boomers. And I was one of the baby boomers. And uh, I remember when I was uh, when I was growing up, the baby boomers were being talked about on all the media as they were the big deal. Right. They were going to be the largest generation in history. There were going to be 80 million of them. And uh, they were going to redefine uh, society. And everybody was focused on the baby boomers. Marketing companies like Nike and any companies that were out there at the time were talking about the baby boomers. Then came the millennials. And the millennials were actually a larger generation. The millennials were 85 million people. And first of all, let's just talk about the millennials for a little bit. Number one, they're the most educated generation in human history. 
They are the most technologically advanced generation in human history. They are the most networked generation in human history. They have a lot going for them, okay? They think differently than us. That's okay. As I spoke about earlier, we need different perspectives, right? Now, maybe the perspective that we had as baby boomers, where we had a focus on consumerism, we had the ancient core values that were handed down to us from the greatest generation, which was a huge benefit to us. And then we had a work ethic that was also handed down, which was a huge benefit to us, made us more industrious, made us more productive. But you know, the lifestyle that we chose, the consumerism, competing with the Joneses, you know, I want a better car, I want a bigger house, the affluence, the effluence, maybe that wasn't all right. The millennial generation doesn't care about all of that. A millennial would rather have a job that they find interesting and rewarding that pays $40,000 a year, a Pew Research study found, than a job that, pay, that they find boring that pays $100,000 a year. Now, that's not my generation. Okay. My generation would have taken the $100,000 job and be bored. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that was the right choice. Maybe the better choice is to, is to take the job that's interesting and rewarding and take less money. Right. So who's to say when I superimpose my values and my beliefs on that choice, I may say it's the wrong choice. But in truth, maybe my values and perspectives are the wrong values and perspectives for that generation. Someone at Oracle, I forget who it was, but it wasn't uh, Larry Elson, it was someone below him, but a high, high-ranking Oracle employee said that empathy will be the greatest skill of the 21st century. With automation, we're going to talk about the future and we're going to talk about uh, automation. But with automation coming, at the rate that it's coming, it's going to eliminate most jobs done by human beings. And so what is going to be the 21st century skill? It is going to be skills that machines cannot perform. Empathy, leadership, building collaboration, leading human beings, these are things that machines can't perform. These are the skill sets of the 21st century, the most important skill sets of the 21st century. Leadership, building teams, collaborating, communication, those skills, being able to relate to one another, recognizing the value in other people and the value of alternative perspectives and diversity. These are the 21st century's most important skills. So, and these are skills that millennials have to a greater degree perhaps than my generation. So maybe they're not all wrong, number one. Number two, regardless of what we think of them, they've been called delusional and have a sense of entitlement or are constantly taking selfies you know, on their phones 10 hours a day. So there are some valid criticisms, but regardless of what we think of them, we need to empower them. We need to make them more formidable. We need to imbue them with whatever we can add to their lives, to make them stronger and wiser and more anti-fragile, more adaptive, more capable. Why? Because I'm 64 years old. I'm going to be dying soon, okay? I'm going to become less 
able to contribute to society. This generation, this millennial generation, will be at the tip of the spear as humanity enters this technological tsunami on the horizon. As we collide with this technological tsunami, millennials will be at the tip of the spear. So it doesn't matter what you think of them. The more you think that they are incapable, the more you need to empower them. So I'm trying to empower them. It's interesting you use the tsunami as an analogy for what's coming because tsunamis can often be predicted, especially if there's an earthquake. Regardless of that prediction, we're not always prepared. In fact, we're usually not prepared. And I think in this case, we're absolutely not prepared for what's coming. And you've chosen as part of your path to study and to examine and to look at what's coming in the future. And you've already alluded to the fact that you were blown away by what you found. And so we're going to spend the remainder of our time talking about the future. So with this tsunami, this impending tsunami that we know is coming, it's not like debatable. It might, no, it's coming. I'm curious as you've studied, and we'll get into AI and and all of that in a minute, but as you studied the future, was there anything that stood out that surprised you the most or that really took the breath out of you the most? Yeah. But before I tell you that, I want to respond to something you just said, that you know, when a tsunami is coming, we know there are subtle signs, right? So if you're on the beach, first of all, the water will retract from the beach, right? That's a sure sign that the tsunami is coming. Then the water will come and start to rise on the beach. The level of the water will start to rise. So what we are experiencing today, today is the disruption that we are experiencing today is the water on the floor of the impending tsunami, okay? There's a reason why China and the United States are going at each other today. And the reason that they're going at each other is what you've asked me to explain, which is what is coming, okay? So that's why they're going at each other today, because of what is coming, okay? So what's coming? The US and China, and Japan actually, is involved in in the uh, computing race, the fastest computers in the world. Uh, several years ago, it was the Sun, Sunway Tau Light, a Chinese computer that calculated at 124 petaflops per second. It's 124 quadrillion calculations per second. Then the Japanese came out with a computer that eclipsed that and was faster, two or three times faster than that. Now the US has a computer called the Frontier that calculates at 1,000 petaflops, not 124. So one quintillion calculations per second. Today, the Frontier is the fastest known computer. Now, that doesn't mean China doesn't have something that's even faster that they have yet to announce, right? But when they had the Sunway Tau Light, they were predicting a computer in the next year that would calculate at one quintillion calculations per second. So the US now has that, we've announced it. Google, there was an employee at Google who went to Congress and said that he believes that the AI that he was working with was sentient, that it could think and feel like a human, right? And he went to Congress to to tell him that this is what he believed. And the guys at Google said, no, 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 no. You, You just, we made it that way so that you would think it's real, but it's not really sentient, right? Well, how are we to know, right? How are we to know where this is at right now? and where this is going right now. 
Now, Stephen Hawking, you know, some of the things that I, that I learned when I started studying was that Stephen Hawking, arguably our generation's Albert Einstein, said before he died in 2014 that the singularity, that moment in time when machine intelligence would eclipse human intelligence, would be the greatest event in human history, greater than fire, greater than the wheel, greater than anything mankind has ever conceived of. Ray Kurzweil, the head of artificial intelligence for Google, Bill Gates says knows more about artificial intelligence than anyone he knows. Ray Kurzweil tells us that that moment in time that Stephen Hawking was talking about will come as early as 2029. That's seven years away. So according to Kurzweil, who's been 80 plus percent correct in his predictions since the 1990s, he's been tracked. He's telling us that this is coming as this greatest event in human history is coming in seven years. Elon Musk has said it may come earlier. I believe it will come earlier. And so we have the greatest event in human history coming within before the end of the decade. Now, what Kurzweil goes on to say is what really shook me up. Kurzweil went on to say that by the 2040s, artificial intelligence will not be our equal. It will be a billion times, with a B, a billion times more capable than human intelligence within 20, give or take a decade, 20 years, okay? So that is is beyond our ability to even comprehend. The human brain has no way of understanding what an intelligence that is a billion times its own represents. Okay, but I can tell you this. I believe the questions that have eluded man since the dawn of time will be answered over the next 20 years. Our entire knowledge base, everything that humanity has learned since the beginning of time will double over the next decade. There is a massive change that is coming. Now, when this change came, not this change, but when massive change came before in the form of the industrial revolution, we were an agrarian society. 90% of Americans were farmers. And today, less than 10% are farmers. So there's this massive shift that occurred. We created the public education system to prepare our population for the industrial revolution so that they could work in factories and operate machines as opposed to farming. Well, now we are on the edge of a technological revolution that will dwarf the industrial revolution. Has there been a change in education? Because if there has, I've missed it. So we're not preparing our public like we did at the turn of the industrial revolution for the technological revolution. We haven't revamped our entire educational system to prepare for the technological revolution. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is that we don't need human beings to work. We won't need human beings to work. McKinsey and Company, a global consulting firm, came out several years ago and said that 47.5% of all jobs that currently exist today are susceptible to automation based on existing technology, not future technology. 
based on existing technology. So half the jobs that exist today can be automated based on existing technology. Over the next 10 years, that technology is going to increase radically. So a perfect example is Amazon. Amazon has uh, human beings that sort packages. They get large bins of packages and they have to sort them into other bins. They're clocked on how quickly they can do this. Their brakes are regulated and they have bonus categories for how high they can perform. They're judged on the accuracy of their product sorting and they're judged on the speed of their product sorting. Up until a year ago, there was no robot that could outperform the human being in that sorting activity because they lacked the dexterity of a human being to move that rapidly. And their cameras were unable to recognize all of the information that was required because of the reflective properties of some of the packaging. So Convariant, a company called Convariant, has come out with a robot that can outperform any Amazon employee with 99% accuracy at a speed that would put the uh, robot in the highest bonus category. (laughs) Now, if you're Amazon and you're building a new factory, are you building it for human beings or are you building it for the Convariant robots? (laughs) I can tell you I'm building it for the Convariant robots right? If I have a fiduciary duty to my shareholders, right? I can amortize the cost of these machines in three to four years, pay them off so that they work for free and they work 24 hours a day and they don't unionize. And they're not asking for $15 an hour, let alone $22 an hour. So we have a dilemma, right? Truck drivers. The number one job for an American male is truck driver. Uh, There are over 3 million of these truck drivers, and Chrysler Dahmer was doing cross-country trips with driverless semis back in 2018. So they have a guy who sits in the cab, but that will be gone soon. He won't be in the cab. And so driverless uh, trucks will be the norm, and truck drivers will be unemployed. Clerical workers, the number one job for an American female, those jobs are gone, over 3 million of them. Uber drivers, over 5 million of them, those jobs are gone. Fast food workers, 8.5 million of them, those jobs are going to be gone. Journalists. Amazon also owns the Washington Post. They developed an algorithm. All the editor needed to do, if I wanted to have you write an article on why XYZ is a traitor, pick a name. I want you to write a 750-word article on why this guy is a traitor to the United States. Well, you present that as an editor to a reporter, and the reporter might say, well, I don't think they are a traitor. I'm not going to write that article. I don't want to write that article. I don't believe those accusations. Well, now there is a program, and that program has existed for six years. In 2016, Amazon published 500 articles that were authored by this machine. No one knew it was authored by the machine. They received over 500,000 likes on those articles. They have been licensing that technology to newspapers around the country. So today, any newspaper editor doesn't have to find a reporter who will morally accept the assignment. He just types into the computer what he wants. 
give me a 750 word article on why XYZ is a traitor. And the machine delivers the best written article that you can imagine instantaneously. All he's got to do is hit enter and, and he's got his article. Now, think of the implications. Think of mat- match that data point with the data point that I told you about the double-edged sword and the susceptibility and the malleability of the human brain. Deep fakes. There's video technology that allows someone to create me talking to you like I am, only it's not me. And you won't be able to know the difference. They did this with a deep fake video of, of Obama. What if they do that with Vladimir Putin? What if they do that with Donald Trump? What if they do that with Chairman Xi, right? Will we know? When will we know? How will we know, right? So these are all issues that we should be talking about, right? I'm not suggesting that I have the answers to any of this. I'm just suggesting that it needs to be the topic of discussion. And we need to have critical thinking with this too, especially with this. I mean, if it doesn't apply here, where else could it apply more than this? is to have that critical thinking, which is why I wanted to start with critical thinking and, na- and then navigate into the future. Yeah, I want the best minds of the country talking about these issues, and I want to hear them. I want to hear what they all have to say. I want to hear what Putin has to say, unvarnished and uncensored by our media. I want to hear what Elon Musk has to say. I want to hear what Bill Gates has to say. I want to hear what Jordan Peterson has to say. I want to hear what they all have to say. I want to hear some of the best minds in this country and the academics at Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Stanford and the Lawrence Lessigs of the world. And let's bring them out. Let's have this discussion. Let's be talking about these things. Why aren't we talking about these things? I mean, really? Well, the tsunami of change is coming. You talk about this repeatedly in that change is coming and specifically that AI will redefine life as we know it. I don't think it's unavoidable. This is, it, it's happening. It can happen one of many ways. Certainly we could turn into a dystopian society and it just be ruled by these artificial beings or whatever we call them. But it's also very exciting at the same time, right? There's this merger of man and machine and what that could do to our own capabilities, both good and bad. There's this idea of health and longevity you talk about something in your book called longevity escape velocity, which is fascinating. And then there's this idea of just the capability we have with our, with our mind that we could communicate in other ways, potentially telepathically, potentially we could have our, our memories archived. I mean, there's our consciousness could one day reside. And you say this in your book in the cloud. This is fascinating. Yeah, Kurzweil believes that our neural cortex will be connected to the cloud 20 years from now, 30 years from now. We won't, you know, when I was a kid, I had to go to the library, get on my bike and go to the library to learn something. My daughter goes to her phone that has 100,000 times the computing power that NASA had in 1969, right? And every kid on the block has these, all right? Well, 50 years from now or less, 20 years from now, because technology is accelerating, the rate of progress is accelerating. So it won't take another 50 years like it took from 1969 to now to have something that is portable and 100,000 times what they had in 69. This is all accelerating very rapidly. 
And, you know, just like AI going from being not as capable as a human being, as the human brain, going to a billion times as capable in a 20-year period, well, that's going to happen with everything. That artificial intelligence expansive capability is going to affect every area of human endeavor. It's going to change everything. And the point that you raise is important about it's not all bad, right? So we are at a tipping point. We are at a tipping point. And we can either have all of this new technology and new power and new ability cause us to tip into dystopian despair with increased surveillance, a lack of freedom, increased control over human beings, you know, a reduction in our autonomy and our choice, you know, that can all happen. Or we can enter a second enlightenment, like the first enlightenment, where, where knowledge went from the monarchies and the aristocracy and the wealthy and was distributed to the masses, right? We can use this technology. We can harness this technology. Kurzweil also talks about nanobots pulsing through our bloodstream, curing all of our diseases, right? We could live in a glorious utopian society with this technology, right? It's up to us. These are choices. These are choices that we as human beings will make. Now, the question is, who's making those choices? Is it a disengaged public that doesn't participate? doesn't demand this kind of dialogue and discussion and deliberation that makes those determinations? Or is it some elite group that makes these decisions for us? And are they philosopher kings? Are they benevolent? Or are they, you know, despotic titans, right? I don't know, but I would rather have the public making those decisions. And I would rather have us getting involved in the process. And I think this is one of the promises of blockchain technology and decentralization is that it can move power away from centers of concentration. You can run governments on blockchain technology, right? We could all vote on any issue that is being uh, debated by blockchain encrypted voting technology with secure elections where we, we wouldn't have to worry about whether or not our elections were secure. And half the country is worried about that today, right? We don't have to be worried about that. We could put all our elections on blockchain and fully encrypted, and they they would be impervious to manipulation. You know, why aren't we doing that? We could further separate them. We could have them, you know, in all 50 states working independently, but still using that technology, right? So that no one could enter one system and compromise the system. There are ways that we could harness this technology and protect ourselves we have to be discussing it. We have to be thinking it through. We have to have the best minds. I'm not a technologist, right? I'm not Elon Musk. I would need his guidance and the guidance of others like him. But I can put data points together. I can look at information from a helicopter perspective, and I can pull from these different data points and solve problems. That's what I've been doing for 30 years. And that's a skill set. That's what's called a broad learner. Some people call it uh, polymaths. You know, because you have a very broad range of information. You're not a deep learner. Ray Kurzweil is a deep learner. I'm a broad learner. Yeah, you know a little about a lot. Or maybe you know more, maybe a little bit more than a little, but you know a a very broad range of topics that you have knowledge over. And you know I worked at Tesla. The number one thing that stood out about Elon 
was his ability to solve problems. That is the number one thing I think makes that sets him apart. That and using first principle thinking, which goes hand in hand. What stood out the most was his ability to ask questions. That one ability to ask the right questions and in the right way and to the right people, which you've highlighted here is so foundational to be us being able to navigate and get through and hopefully survive this tsunami and maybe even thrive after this tsunami. We have to have the right people who can contribute in the right ways to the conversation. And you took the words out of my mouth. I was going, that was my last question on blockchain. So you, you covered it about four or five times. I'm like, oh, my next question's about this. And you're just reading my mind. And so whether it be through a DAO or some other way to allow ourselves to have a more distributed ability to synthesize our beliefs and ideas in a way that is a lot better than the current system, because it's much like the outdated education system. We have an outdated government created system. So leave us with this. What's your final thought in terms of, and by the way, I'd love to have you on again, because I feel like we only scratched the surface. And I think I'm actually, you mentioned the word relearn. I'm starting a new show called Relearn with the co-host, which would be a perfect topic uh, for us to talk about, because a lot of what we're doing is relearning. But I'm curious if you could say there's something that we could be doing proactively. I know you don't have all the answers. No one has all the answers. But if there's something that either you want to double down on that we discussed or maybe something else that we didn't, in order for us to prepare, and especially not just us, because as you said, I mean, we're not going to be here forever. So future generations, how can they get ready for this tsunami? Okay, so I'm going to touch on what you what you just said earlier about Elon and uh, the ability to ask the right questions. Okay, so what is more important than knowledge is intelligence, right? Knowledge is accessible to all of us. It's at our fingertips. It's on our phones. It's accessible through through Google, through you know the Library of Congress, through research, through reading. And soon our neural cortex will be connected to the cloud and we'll just have to ask a question and the answer will come to us instantaneously. But you have to know what question to ask. That is not knowledge. That is intelligence, right? So knowing the questions to ask is intelligence. How do you cultivate that intelligence? It's not through deep learning. It's through broad learning. Because when you're a broad learner, when you develop a love of learning, a thirst, a true hunger and thirst for learning, and you develop a love of learning, you become a broad learner. You want to learn everything. You devour information. You devour information like, you know, somebody devours Lay's potato chips or chocolate chip cookies or whatever. You devour information. You wake up in the morning and you want to read. You want to learn, right? And you want to learn about all sorts of things, right? That love of learning uh, sharpens your sword. It sharpens your mind. It makes your mind a more formidable tool. And that's what we need. We need people to develop a love of learning. We need them to embrace adaptation. We need them to learn how to adapt to changing circumstances. Darwin said it's not the strongest or the most intelligent that survive. It's those most capable of adaptation. Uh, Nicholas Tlaib uh, wrote a book recently called Anti-Fragile. 
And he talks about how the wind can extinguish a candle, but ignite a flame. And his advice was, be the flame and wish for the wind. In other words, don't fear challenge. Don't fear change. Don't fear adversity. Leaders don't run from problems. They run at them. Run at problems. Acknowledge them. Understand them. Be aware of them. Create awareness about them. And then run at them to solve them. Beautifully said. This has been an amazing conversation. George, thank you so much. Please, please, please go to Millennial Samurai and pick up a copy of the book or go to Amazon where you could buy the book and then help others get the book. You could also go to People Rain. That's R-E-I-G-N. Maybe talk a little bit about that in a moment. But also you could find George on his social platforms. It's George J. Chanos. That's C-H-A-N-O-S at Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. And then his website is georgejchanos.com. You can find so much great knowledge and information. So you could start your journey if you haven't already. But I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've already started your journey to understand and to gain more knowledge. You could gain so much more by going there. Tell us about People Rain and anything else that you want to leave us with. I've had three passions throughout my life. Art, as you can see behind me, politics, my stint as attorney general, and business, my chairmanship of Capriati's and, and Wingsum. So art, politics, and business. I paint, I do sculptural assemblage, I make jewelry. I believe one of my greatest strengths is not my analytical prowess, it's my creativity. I solved problems by using creativity, by developing options, by generating options to solve problems that others didn't think about. So art, when I saw Beeple sell at Christie's for $69 million, and I saw Medicoven being interviewed, and he was asked, what are you going to do with this Beeple? And he said, it's going to go into a digital museum in a metaverse that I'm building. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting. What else is going to go in that metaverse? And what, el what else is going to go in that digital museum? And can I create something that could go into those digital museums in that metaverse or in those metaverses? And then I saw you know, things like CryptoPunks, where they gave away 10,000 CryptoPunks for free. And in 2017, nobody cared. In 2018, nobody cared. 2019, nobody cared. 2020, when Beeple hit the stage, everybody cared and CryptoPunks generated $2 billion in sales. As a businessman, I've never seen anything where you give away 10,000 units of anything and it generates $2 billion in sales. So I became very intrigued by this whole thing. And I thought, you know, this plays into, I started looking at what people created. I looked at every day's 5,000 days. They were 5,000 different digital pieces of art that he created over a 5,000 day period over 10 years. And most of it was political. And I thought, well, that's one of my other passions. So here's art that's political, right? And then legacy. I can create art that leaves a legacy like my books. I can imprint things on the blockchain immutably in perpetuity that will leave behind a legacy of my art. What kind of art can I create, right? And I don't have to be the graphic artist. I can hire the graphic artist, but I can give them my vision. I can tell them what I want them to create, what I want it to look like. I can be the creative director. When I was a second year lawyer, I went and I interviewed with ad agencies. I was a second year lawyer doing quite well, working at one of the largest firms in the world. 
And uh, I went to an ad agencies in San Diego and I interviewed and I said, I want to be a creative director. And uh, they said, we'll hire you, but not as a creative director. You'll start out as an account executive. You'll be selling advertising. And if you're good, you'll work your way up to creative director. And I said, okay, well, how much does that pay? And they said, $18,000 a year. And I was a young lawyer making over $100,000 a year. And I was just got married. And I said, well, I can't do that. You know, I can't leave. So I had golden handcuffs that kept me in the legal profession, but I always wanted to be a creative director. Well, when NFTs came along, it gave me a chance to be a creative director. I am now working with artists from all over the world, and I am hiring illustrators, after effects artists, animators, and I'm telling them what I want them to create. And I'm building teams. So People Rain is about teams of artists that are coming up with new and imaginative and creative works of art. Uh, Disney called this a new era in creativity. Disney's building a metaverse, Meta's building a metaverse, Google's building a metaverse, Netflix is building a metaverse. So there are going to be metaverses everywhere. Content will be king, just like it is in Hollywood. They're going to need content for these metaverses. And I'm having fun creating it, and I'm leaving behind a legacy. So what am I creating? Well, we've been talking about Elon, right? And you worked for Tesla. So here's one piece. This is a bill that is called Moon Money. That's awesome. It's called Moon Money. And Elon is on the front of it. On the back of it is an unknown artist named Billy Halliday. If you've heard of Banksy out of London, yeah. Billy Halliday is, is my Banksy. Okay. And here's a bill. Uh, Donald Trump. Okay. And it's part of the Moon Money Collection. These bills are the number one and number two trading NFTs on the foundation platform. It fluctuates every day who's number one and who's number two, but we have been the number one and number two trading NFTs on the foundation platform. And on those bills is I've incorporated into the design binary code and hex code. And the binary code and the hex code are translatable into text. So on the Musk bill, surrounding the character from Dr. Strangelove, the mad scientist, mad president played by Peter Sellers, surrounding it is hex code that says Twitter is a war zone, which is a quote, (laughs) which is a quote from Elon, right? So I've taken the things that Elon has said, you know, you talked about first principles. So down in the corner, it says first principles. And it says, no assholes. <laughs> he said there, that's one of the rules at SpaceX. No assholes, right? So I've taken what he said and I've immortalized it on this bill, immutably minted it on the blockchain in perpetuity. It is not a criticism of Elon. It is a homage to him. I admire a great deal that he's done. So he's the number one bill. It's called the Founding Father Collection. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's based on him. The Donald Trump bill also has what he has said, right? So you can grab him by the pussy is on the bill in code. (laughs) Who are all these people coming in from shithole countries? It's on the bill. So all these things that he has said, you know, it's only one person coming in from China, referring to COVID in the very beginning. It's only one person coming in from China, (laughs) right? So, So all the things that he has said, are immortalized on that bill, printed immutably on the blockchain in perpetuity. 
I believe that these are collector's items. I believe that they will you know, be more important 100 years from now than they are today. I could be wrong. I'm not offering anybody any investment advice. I'm not suggesting they're going to make money buying these things, but I would create them for free because they're a way for me to make a political statement, uh, political satire, parody are the uh, things that I'm relying on to uh, freedom of speech, to be able to say what I want to say and do what I'm doing. And I believe it's important to speak out and to you know leave something behind. So that's what I'm doing in the art world today. This is uh, Andy Warhol's bill. Wow. So this is Putin's bill. This is Chairman Xi's bill. This is Jeff Bezos's bill. Wow. Okay. This is uh, Mark Zuckerberg's bill, right? So there are eight different collections. They're all doing rather well. You know, I'm having fun with it and I'm leaving a little bit more of a legacy. Well, Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for living your legacy and for sharing so much of your wisdom, so much of your experience, all the work that you put into what started as a letter to your daughter and ended and is still going as multiple books and being on podcasts like this and sharing what hopefully will be a wake up call to the tsunami that's coming that that is imminent and that we'll all experience provided we live to that point. I think it's necessary to stand up in front of conversations like this and and really not be so wedded to our own beliefs that we become blind and or ignorant to anything that may happen in our lives because we need to be together. We need to work together. We need to learn from one another to make sure that we're able to be here to see it all happen and unfold. So George, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute delight. Yeah. And that point you just raised, let's pick up with that next time we get together about how human beings are profoundly interdependent and how we do need each other and how that mimics nature. If you look at nature, you'll see why, but we are profoundly interdependent. We do need each other and we need to start recognizing that our strength is in our unity and our peril is in our division. Profoundly said. Appreciate it. And that's a great tease for the next one. And I'm, I'm definitely up for it. So let's do it. Okay. Well, thanks, Billy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.